Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. We'll begin looking at verse 4. Let me say while you're turning there how very proud I am of you and the turnout we had for last uh, Lord's Day evening worship. I think it was a record number and it's becoming more and more a habit of our church. I trust you're blessed by beginning an evening each Lord's Day with worship. Same tonight, Acts chapter 13, verse 4, and because it's such a long passage and we are limited in our time, we don't want to give short shrift to the Lord's Supper, I'm going to guide you through the reading of this text, and I'll comment on the whole of the text, but we'll only read portions of it. And I want you to listen very carefully as we read for the six times that the author, that Luke, records the power of of the Word of God. We've seen it in these first 12 chapters, the power of the Word of God to convert, the power of the Word of God to uh, put unbelief in its place, to conquer unbelief, even to take out every hurdle to the, to the forward movement of the church of Jesus Christ. But what I want you to hear is the power of the Word of God because it is the Word of Jesus to convert pronounce forgiveness of sins, to provide real hope, which our world is desperately in need of. We've seen it afresh this week, haven't we? Let's begin reading in verse 4 of Acts chapter 13. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the Word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, And they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord." Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Now verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written, 
they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up, from him, up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Then 44. <clears throat> the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, all flesh is grass and its beauty like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the Word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit would come upon us mightily and by the Word of God convict and convert us. We long to hear the good news of the gospel. Those who have never heard it before and those who have heard it, we are longing like the rest to hear it again. We pray it in the strong name of Christ and for His sake and God's people said together, Amen. Yesterday, the horse Justify won the Belmont Stakes. If you bet on that horse, I expect to see evidence of it in the offering plate this morning. <laughs> that aside, Justify, the horse, won that race and became the 13th horse in all history to win the Triple Crown and could win the Grand Slam. Maybe that's the first, maybe only the second. But certainly the 13th, only the 13th to win those three great horse races and as a very young horse. I read this morning that because of Justify's accomplishments, his breeding rights have now increased in their price. The uh, breeding company, the famous stables in Ireland who had bid earlier on breeding rights, $60 million. And yesterday they went up $15 million, $75 million he will get paid to be a dad someday. Now why is that? Why is that horse more valuable than any horse in history? because he's exclusive, because he's unique. We know that in our world, don't we? <clears throat> the more unique, the more 
unusual, the more rare something is, the more valuable it is. The more valuable it is, the more rare it is. So it would stand to reason, would it not, that this gospel we're reading about in this book and especially in this chapter, that alone is able to bring forgiveness of sin through that unique Son of God, even Jesus Christ, that it would be exclusive that Jesus Christ and belief in Him alone, submission to Him alone is the only way of salvation because only He offers forgiveness. Something of infinite worth is exclusive. Something that is exclusive is of infinite worth. I make that point because, as is usual, the gospel is under attack. There is a fresh attack against the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the only way, the only truth, the only source of eternal life. Some of my African-American friends who are scholars in what they call urban apologetics, Carl Ellis and Vince Bantu and others have made me aware that this is a new attack on the gospel, that there are those who are recovering the words of, of Malcolm X saying, that the exclusivity of the gospel is a white man's religion, that saying that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation is something invented to keep minorities under oppression. But Vince Bantu, my friend from Covenant Seminary, a foremost scholar and patristics, early church fathers in the world who also happens to be African-American, has shown me and many others recently by passages like this, the, the, the verses that immediately preceded that show that the first missionary movement back to Europe was one instigated, initiated by black Africans named Lucius and Simeon or Simon of Cyrene. That exclusivity of Jesus was not something invented by Europeans. It was hatched in North Africa before there was a Europe. It's far from something that we have invented to keep others under, under control or pressed down. We have our theology because of the greatest early theologians like Augustine and Origen and Tertullian and Ignatius and Irenaeus and, uh, and Sh uh, Shura the Great. These were African theologians, Coptic theologians, Egyptian theologians, and these are the ones who brought this gospel here. They were spilling their blood in the first and second century because they would not compromise on the fact that Jesus Christ alone is the only way of salvation. I want you to know that from the earliest days, people have laid down their lives from every tribe and tongue and people and nation to which the gospel has gone. They have laid down their lives for this gospel because they know that there is salvation no, under, no other name but Jesus who alone gives forgiveness of sins. It is what the world is longing to hear, that there is hope. And that hope can only be found in forgiveness of sins in Christ alone. It is what moved then Paul to say this very 
unpolitically correct thing, this very inhospitable thing that you, Elymas, an intelligent man or a son of the devil, an enemy, a villain, a man of crooked ways. Why would he say things so strongly? Because he was trying to confuse the only message of hope. I want you to appreciate how wonderful that news appears to those who have never heard. First of all, by understanding who this Sergius Paulus was. He's called, he's identified, he's described in verses 4 through 12, he's called a proconsul of Cyprus. Cyprus was annexed by Rome in A.D. 55, and then a couple of years later it was made a, a colony, a part, of a part of a region called Seleucia, that's mentioned in the text. And then as it grew in prominence, it was attached to a, a legate who was a kind of administrator for a region. But eventually it became such an important place, you might say it became a full state, not just a territory, but a full state about 25 years later. It was given not a legate, not an administrator, but a governor called a proconsul. In fact, this man, Sergius Paulus, as a proconsul, one who was toward the council, part of the council, became a member of the Roman Senate. He had a hand in ruling the entire Roman Empire. That historical background is important because I want you to realize, number one, that what Luke is writing is accurate. Remember, we looked in these early verses of Luke and Luke's gospel that Luke says, I have gone to great extent to make sure that what I'm writing to you is completely accurate. Any lesser scholar would have called Sergius Paulus a legate, but he had been made a proconsul two years before, and Luke took note of that, and Luke with accuracy puts that down. You may trust that this word is fully accurate, not only about historical details, but all of its doctrine as well. The second reason I want you to understand something about Sergius Paulus is to understand this was a mighty, powerful, a very important, powerful Roman leader. And powerful Roman leaders did not become so in a democratic system. They did not become so by a peaceful transfer of power. Backstabbing in the Roman government was not just a way of speaking. Remember your high school Julius Caesar study, etu brute? You only got higher up in Roman leadership by literally trampling on those around you, killing them if necessary. A powerful Roman man could abuse little boys at will. He was given rights to every other woman to abuse her and do with her what he wanted to do. These were horrendous people. This was a man with blood on his hands. This was an adulterer. This was most likely a pedophile. And this man believed. And when this man believed, I want you to look at verses 38 and 39. This is what happened to him. 
Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law. Everything. There are some within the sound of my voice or watching TV who are sitting in prison cells literally with blood on your hands. I want you to know everything means everything. What can you be forgiven of? Everything. Others of you don't have literal blood on your hands, but you have ruined families. You have crushed the self-esteem of your children. You have done things that haunt you in the middle of the night and you find impossible to find forgiveness from. But I'm telling you, it's because you're looking in all the wrong places. It can be found. It must be found in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, your sins may be forgiven. Everything means everything. If he can forgive Sergius Paulus, he can forgive you. I want you to know about Sergius Paulus because I want you to know the good news of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And if that is the message that everybody needs to know, then how are we going to get it to them? Here's what it takes. It comes in the text. Look, it takes this. First of all, it's very complicated. Listen carefully. It means open your mouth. Verse 5, they proclaimed the message. They proclaimed the Word of God. Oh, I'm not a theologian, you say. I don't have a seminary degree. They didn't either. They weren't formally trained. Some were commoners. Some were fishermen. But they were able to proclaim a message like this, a transforming message in a compelling way to a man who was noted to be of intelligence. And how did they do it? They did it in the courage they knew came from the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, verse 7. This Holy Spirit empowered them to speak in a way that was convincing and compelling. And they were willing. In verse 11, you notice they were willing to offend. This Elymas, this magician, he wasn't viewed as a crazy man. He was with a man of intelligence. That was put there for a reason. He was made a counselor to this man of intelligence because he seemed erudite. He seemed to know the latest trends. He seemed to know something about everything. Demons can help people know lots of stuff. He was sophisticated. He wasn't a wild, crazy man. He probably wasn't a mean man. I was thinking yesterday about all the heretics I've known in my life. There are only two I really didn't like. The others were really nice people. They're not easily given away. They can be religion professors. They can be your next-door neighbor. They can be your friend. But in the hand of the devil, they make straight ways crooked. They confuse the gospel. And as such, they are villains. They are sons and servants of the devil. But you notice, they don't 
They don't condemn him totally. They preach judgment to him. Saul preaches judgment on him. He gives him a warning, and he makes him blind for a time. Many believe this was the marking, this was the beginning of Elimas' conversion too. This is the kind of God we have, a God who can, can forgive the sins of a Sergius Paulus and conquer one who is possessed by the devil and led others astray. This is the good news that we have, and all it requires is for you to open your mouth and say something. It doesn't have to be sophisticated. In fact, this is the way the Lord gets His glory, through these simple messages expressing to someone, you know, Jesus forgives sins. Jesus provides hope. Jesus can, can cure you of all your soul's needs. Jesus can satisfy your every longing. Something as simple as that. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, it can be given converting power. And the more you do it, you see verse 52, the more you do it, the more joy and excitement you will have. Do you love to tell the story for those who've never heard? You should because it is the power of God's own holy word. And then we long to tell the story too. We love to tell the story for those who know it best, for those who've heard it from their earliest days. We are desperate for that good news still, aren't we? We're desperate to hear that word and to have it sealed to our consciences in this table that is before us. I want you to see how that comes out in this text in verses 13 to 52. We won't look at every verse, but I want to give you uh, an outline so that you can go back and look at it in greater detail later. later. But I, I want you to see a pattern that emerges in this, in this passage. What we find in this sermon what we find in this sermon are the same four points that we find in every sermon in the New Testament. There was a theologian of the last century named C.H. Dodd. He didn't get some things right, but he got this thing right. That is to identify the four characteristics of every New Testament sermon. Now, every theologian has to come up with a fancy word to say something simple. So he called it the kerugma. The four points of every New Testament sermon, the kerugma, and here are those four points. We could say they're the four talking points of every apostolic sermon. Number one, continuity with the Old Testament. You find that in verse 24. Continuity with the Old Testament. This is not a new message. It's the message that God has been preaching to His people throughout redemptive history. Number two, you find the cross the cross of Christ, that's in verses 27 to 29, that Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross and was cursed, therefore, because He was a substitute for sin. How can He forgive sin? Because He took the curse for it. And number three, you find in every New Testament sermon, the resurrection, verses 30 and 31. Though he was cursed, though he was hung on the cross, he was raised to life because he justified us for our sins. And then the fourth thing you find is justification, that we are justified, verses 38 and 39. We are forgiven. Now, I make those four points about the New Testament sermon because I want you to know that those four points characterize 
the whole Old Testament as well. And that point is made in this passage as well. Those same four points that the, there is one message of grace from beginning to end, that there is the, that, that Jesus died on a cross, that he was raised from the dead, that he gives forgiveness of sins. Those four points God has made from the beginning of redemptive history. Verse 17, we see it in the patriarchal period. The, the, the lamb that was slain. Abraham, we're told in Galatians 3, 8, heard the gospel. It, it, those four points were made in the Exodus. Jesus was that lamb. James says, Jesus led his people out of Egypt. Those same four points were made in the wilderness. Jesus was the rock. You can find that verse 18. Jesus, in these four points, they're made in the conquest, verse 19, is made in the judges period, verse 20. It's made during the monarchy, verses 21 and 22. Here's the simple point. The gospel, the good news of justification by faith alone, forgiveness for all of your sins by the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ has been the message from the beginning of the Bible to Malachi and again through Matthew, through Revelation. And it all tells you this. Here is what this, the, 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 the preacher was saying here. That God has been pursuing you throughout the ages in order to tell you this good news. Paul says, don't you know it? Don't you know it, Jewish people, that he has been pursuing you? Don't you know it, Gentiles, he has been pursuing you? He states it over and over again in Scripture. I am coming to preach forgiveness of sins to you through a Messiah, through my Lamb. The message of this culture... Though it obviously is not working, apparently it's not working. Suicide rates continue to increase, jumping 25% in the last 20 years. Hundreds of thousands of people taking their lives every day because they've lost hope. And yet our culture, the cultural message even in our Disney movies is they're doubling down on the same message which is just be content with who you are. Just be content with who you are. Thinking that's the most loving message they can give but there are people who know that who they are is not right and they don't want to remain who they are. And so when they hear that the only message we have is that you better be content with who you are, then what use is there for living? But Jesus comes to you and says, you should not be content with who you are because I made you for so much more and I can release you from the damning existence that you are living in now. And I can forgive you, and I can wash you clean, and I can set you on a road to growth and hope and healing that will come at the great day. You are not doomed to stay who you are. This gospel is of infinite worth. 
because it's the only gospel. It's the only good news. It's the best news. Your pastor has to be convinced of the gospel every day and every week because it's, it's counter to everything we know, isn't it? I preach the gospel to you week by week, and you preach the gospel to me by your lives. I preach the gospel to you week by week from the pulpit, and my friends and loved ones, not only here but around the world, tell their stories to me to say that convince me, yes, this gospel is true, and it satisfies. You know, I realized something this week that it's hard for me to think of. I can't think of a heresy in the history of the church that was not started by a pastor. And here's why I think that we pastors start heresies. It's because we sit and weep with people who say, the cost is just too much. If I give up this beloved thing to follow Christ, or if I continue with Christ in this way, it's going to cost me this, and we see that that demand, that taking up the cross can sometimes be bone-crushing. We think there's got to be another way because we love people so much, our heads, our hearts get in front of our heads. Recent heresy by Colton Pearson. Colton Pearson's a nice man. He was in agony about his friends who said the price of the gospel is too much. Others who say that there are many ways to God and find it impossible to believe that their loved ones, their neighbors, their friends, their family members will not go to heaven unless they embrace Christ alone. And so we pastors can, can compromise things and as a result we can allow people to to be happy with us, but not satisfied. And someday we'll have to look them in the face and they'll say, why did you want so much my approval that you were willing to let me go to hell? One of the greatest costs that I have witnessed of someone come walking with Christ is to give up same-sex attraction or to live a celibate life though they remain same-sex attracted. A new friend, his name's Sam Alberry. He's, he's an Anglican priest. He wrote a wonderful gospel-centered book called Is God Anti-Gay? And he says in it, God is opposed to homosexuality, yes, but because he loves you so much more. And Sam Alberry can say that with, with authority because he is a man who has never known anything but same-sex attraction and has no hope of changing, but has chosen to live celibately and endures great persecution by saying sex is only acceptable in heterosexual marriage. Recently, he was sitting across from a friend of his who had been in a relationship for 15 years. And this man said, what could be so important that I should give up my partner? And Sam, a pastor, was wrenched in his heart and finally 
remembered the verse from Matthew 10, that he who gives up houses and lands and fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers will receive that much more in this life and in that which is to come. And then he said this to his friend. This is from Sam Alberry, a man who struggles every day with the pain of his sexual brokenness and no prospect of ever having that part of his life satisfied even in a heterosexual marriage. This, Sam Alberry says, preaching the gospel to us in a convincing way again. However much we have to leave behind, we are never left out of pocket. Whatever we give up, Jesus replaces in godly kind in greater measure. No one who leaves will fail to receive, and the returns are extraordinary, a hundredfold. What we give up for Jesus does not compare to what he gives back. If the costs are great, the rewards are even greater, even in this life. For me, these include a wonderful depth of friendship God has given me with many brothers and sisters, the opportunities of singleness, the privilege of a wide-ranging ministry, the community of a wonderful church family. But greater than any of these is the opportunity that any complex and difficult situation presents us with to learn the all-sufficiency of Christ, learning that fullness of life and joy is in Him and in His service and in nowhere else. Whatever sacrifice, it is worth it. And God, by His sacrifice, proves it to you.